Well, as we begin this morning, a brand new series here on Sunday mornings, we've entitled the series, Sin No More. Imagine with me, if you will, you getting up in the morning and you discover that your hand is numb. And you just can't seem to wake it up. Maybe you felt like you maybe slept on it wrong that night or some reason the circulation has been cut off and you're just numb. You put it under the water as you begin to prepare yourself for the day and you realize you can't sense the temperature of the water any longer because your hand is numb. You make your way through the morning thinking, oh, by the end of the day it should be fine. And by the end of the day you discover that not only is your hand still numb, but you are still impervious to any type of sensation within it. So that day you go to the doctor, that evening you go to the doctor, and he begins to examine your hand to find out if you are sensitive to any kind of touch or stimuli. And he pinches it. And you don't flinch. Then he works his way up your arm, and you discover you don't feel that either. Comes back to the back of your arm, where you may be a little bit more sensitive, and you, he pinches there again, and you still don't feel it. Now, many of you today might think that he then turns to you and says, Congratulations, you're a superhero. And your power is you cannot feel pain. But more likely, you would notice the concern on his or her face. Knowing that he or she is going to have to run further tests to try to understand why your nervous system is not working properly and why you are not feeling any type of pain or sensation in your hand and your arm. Because the doctor knows that the nervous system is vital for your health. God put it there as a warning to you that as your nervous system kicks into action, one of those recipients of the nervous system is pain itself. How many times have you ever touched something hot and just quickly recoiled? Or maybe you cut yourself on something sharp and because you felt it, you recoiled immediately. But someone who doesn't have that capability of feeling in that way, could keep on touching something hot and be scalded and not have any kind of understanding that they are permanently damaging their hand. Not only has God given us a nervous system to allow us to feel physical pain, to feel sensation, to be able to make a judgment call on the basis of what we are experiencing. But God has given us a spiritual nervous system also that is derived from your center of your being, that is your conscience. And like your hand, if something goes wrong with that central system of your conscience, your spiritual nervous system... It can become desensitized, a word that we're going to use often this morning, desensitized. And you are going to discover that those things that once shocked you, those things that once caused you to recoil, aren't going to seem to have any effect on you whatsoever going forward. 
If the spiritual nervous system of an individual has become damaged, it's imperative that it is repaired. Because it can become so desensitized that we no longer know right from wrong. Did you realize that? That it can go that far? And we may be doing something in our lives that seems pleasurable at the moment, only to discover in the long run, it is killing us. It's hurting us. It's keeping us from all that God would have for us. It's one of those things that we know that we shouldn't be involved in. We know that it is wrong before God, but yet somehow, some way, we have justified it. We have said it's okay. God knows my circumstances and therefore it's okay with Him. God hasn't judged me. It's okay. I don't feel guilty about it any longer. It's okay. I don't feel convicted about it any longer. It's okay. Is that true or is your spiritual nervous system so damaged that you just can't sense it anymore? Our conscience can be desensitized to the point that it becomes no use to us any longer. However, though, the Bible tells us that as believers, our conscience can be revived, can be resensitized to know right from wrong, sin from righteousness. I believe today, more than ever, many Christians are discovering that their central nervous system, their spiritual nervous system, their conscience has been seared, has been damaged by the world in which we live. As the world changes the moral standards each and every day, we have a tendency to become desensitized by the onslaught of the things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we experience. And no longer does it seem to be a big deal for us anymore. How many different ways have we become desensitized? I was shocked to discover in myself that I could go and I could watch the evening news and they tell me that over the weekend, 23 people were shot. And you know what? It didn't impact me like it should. I had to be honest with myself. I had heard it so many times. You just say, oh, that's the world. That's life. 23 people lost their lives needlessly. Several of those individuals were children. It's like, Lord, man, what's going on? This should have thrown me to my knees in prayer for the city of Chicago. And I got up and went on with my day. Desensitized. How many things have we been desensitized to? How many sins have we been desensitized to? Let me tell you one way that the world loves to desensitize us to different sins of the Bible. Just get us to laugh at them. How many sitcoms do we watch and the subject matter is blatant sin in the eyes of God and we laugh? <laughs> really? Have we become so desensitized that 
fornication, adultery, homosexuality. It doesn't hit us any longer as being wrong in the eyes of God. It doesn't hit us any longer that His Son Jesus Christ came and died in the brutal manner in which He did to rectify the effects of sin on the world. Let's be honest with ourselves. I'm talking to me this morning as much as I'm speaking to you. Have we become desensitized and do we need to be resensitized to the fact that sin is sin? We can't even move into this series until we wrestle with that idea and admit to ourselves that we have been desensitized. And often, let's be honest with ourselves again before God, we have allowed it to happen, man. When I talk about being desensitized, I'm talking about the loss of sensitivity to something. To move one, to make one indifferent, unaware, or the like in any type of feeling. Now this is nothing new to our culture. In fact, I'm going to show you from 2 Peter that there was one who was desensitized by his culture. And it wasn't at the time of Christ, it was all the way back in the book of Genesis. This individual became desensitized. The oppression and the sin of the world weighted down upon him. And as it's stated in the ESV, he became greatly distressed by it. And it kind of gives you the wrong picture. And it doesn't represent the Greek word well enough. But if you are there, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 4 through 10, and I'm going to point out something to you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is yet going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lives among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he had saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. I want you to notice this man Lot. Lot, the nephew of Abraham, had a fear of the Lord. He was tight with Abraham. At one point, Abraham and him were looking on the vista of the world before them, the land before them, and Abraham said to Lot, you take whatever portion you want and I'll take the other portion. And Lot happened to move right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. Property values were good at that time, but that was about to change. And as time went on, Lot became distressed due to the unrighteousness that was there in the city. He became desensitized to it. And how do I know that? 
Because the word in the Greek here that we translate distress actually means to be worn down. It's like something rubbing against you every single day, wearing you down, down to the ground. Now, if you do that on your hand enough, if you use your hands enough in a certain way over and over and over again, you form callus on your hands, correct? And those callus then keep you from hurting your hand any further. Usually you blister first, right? But then after a while, your hand begins to callus. And those callus keeps you from getting hurt any further. But those calluses are dead, aren't they? Dead skin. And you can't feel anything. It's not that they allow you to feel just good things and keep out the bad. They don't let you feel good or bad. Lot became worn down. He became desensitized. And when the angels came to judge, you know the story. The angels came... They came to Lot's house saying, Lot, you must leave before we destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot invited them in, and then shortly after, the whole city came knocking on Lot's doors because they wanted to have relations with the angels. They wanted to have sexual relations with the angels. Perversion had gone to an all-time low. But what did Lot do? He sent out his daughters. That's desensitized, right? Thinking, oh, I'm not going to give them the angels, but my daughters are okay. What? That's desensitized. It had worn on him that much that he made such a decision. We're becoming like that, folks. The world is grating on us each and every day. But it's not only the world anymore, is it? The world would be one thing to contend with, but now we have the church. This church over here says this is okay. Homosexuality is completely acceptable before God. Why shouldn't two people who love each other marry each other? When is love ever a bad thing, right? You have that church over here. Then you have the other church saying, no, no, no. It's between a man and a woman. It's sin before God. So not only are we contending with the world, but we're also contending with the church. What are we to do? And it grades on us. And we become greatly distressed. We become desensitized. People look at us as if we're intolerant, bigoted, small-minded because we would say, no, we believe that's sin before God. Many Christians don't want to stand up like that. They don't want to do it. They know it's going to jeopardize their Facebook status. They know they're going to lose friends. Relationship status goes from yes to it's complicated. They don't want to go there. They're not going to stand up for God in that way. It's easy to conform with the world, folks. That's what a lot of the church is doing. Conforming with the world to appease the world, and the world is dying as a result of it. I love what one wrote when he said, Satan's desires to desensitize Christians to the hideousness of sin. That is his desire. He wants you to stop mourning over sin and start enjoying it. Impossible, you say? Many who once thought so have fallen prey to its power. It usually doesn't happen all at once. In fact, the progress can be slow and subtle. Almost unnoticeable. But the results are always tragic. 
always tragic. Swindoll quoted a man named John Henry Hewitt. Listen to these words. Sin is a blasting presence, and every fine power shrinks and withers in the destructive heat of it. Every spiritual delicacy succumbs to its malignant touch. Sin impairs the sight and works towards blindness. Sin benumbs the hearing and tends to make men deaf. Sin perverts the taste, causing men to confuse the sweet with the bitter and the bitter with the sweet. Sin hardens the touch and eventually renders a man's past feelings. All these are scriptural analogies, and their common significance appears to be this. Sin blocks and chokes the fine senses of the spirit. But sin we are desensitized, rendered imperceivable, and the range of our correspondence is diminished, meaning we no longer can't see things as they actually are. That's what he's saying. Sin creates callousness. It hoofs the spirit and so reduces the area of our exposure to pain. Sin will cripple you as a Christian. And we don't even realize it anymore. Why have we become desensitized to sin? Why do we become desensitized to sin? I'm going to give you five reasons. Number one, it's due to a lack of knowledge. We just don't know anymore. When I began to start this series, I went and I looked at about 10 churches in the area and I went on their websites. And do you know out of the 10, I couldn't find one that was addressing sin? Not one. Not one that was addressing sin. People just don't know anymore what is sin in the eyes of God. It is a direct result of the enormous biblical illiteracy that we are discovering in the church today. Christians just don't know what the Bible says about certain aspects of life. They just don't know. Hosea warned of this. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge as God was rebuking the priests. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget you as our children. So number one, we have to teach what the Bible says, and you have to learn. So if we're going to be effective in correcting this course and resensitizing you to the Spirit of God, that He may show you when you're going down the wrong road, or you're about to enter into a temptation that God would have you avoid, and that siren goes off, that conviction is then laid in upon you, you can respond to it appropriately and divert that potential downfall. So if we're going to resensitize ourselves, number one, we must learn. My job is to teach you. Your job is to learn. We must know what the Word of God says about sin if we are going to become resensitized. Number two, Christians today no longer want to live in the new life, but they seem content to continue in the old. Again, I think this is a direct 
result of biblical illiteracy. We just don't understand how wonderful the new life in Christ actually is. I, I just, I can't, I, I don't know how else to say it. it. It's unbelievable to me. It's like God gives us a brand new house, but yet we bring our old carpet and carpet our new house with it. What? Are you kidding? So many want to live as if they never ever experience Christ in their life. They want to continue in their old ways. They want to continue in the old life. But Paul says in Ephesians four seventeen through 24, I read this to you. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you may no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. These are people that did not have an understanding of God. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardened hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, you are to put off your old self, which belongs to your formal manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to renew, you are to be renewed by the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God and into the right, true righteousness and holiness. We are no longer meant to live as we once lived. Subjected and guided by our fleshly desires and our personal emotions. We have a new king. We have a new Lord. It is him that we have to submit ourselves to and live in accordance to what he desires for us. And the cure to this is a transformed mind to conform to God's will. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 states, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect before Him. Number three, what influences you? We're all influenced by something, aren't we? You know? How many Cubs jerseys have we seen over the last three weeks? Okay? Influenced by something. How many have an Apple Watch? Influenced by something. Everybody is influenced by something, and they act accordingly. Christians, we need to be influenced by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Our minds must be formed and transformed by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Our thinking must align with the thinking of God, which we can obtain and understand through the written Word of God. There's a lot of influences. Some are benign, some doesn't matter. Others matter deeply. How many of us have proceeded on this particular phrase? The experts say, yeah, I can already hear it. Yeah, I went down that road. The experts say one thing this week and say something else the next week. The poor egg. <laughs> I think about that. Every time Dina has me go and, sh- and shop and she goes, oh, go pick up some eggs. I said, oh, they're in favor this week? I actually, Dina and I remember this. We were watching television we, and on the evening news at that time they had a whole segment on how bad the egg was for you. Bad! Bad egg! 
People were throwing eggs out by the dozen. Chickens didn't know what to do with all of their eggs. They just stand there with their wings up saying, what's going on? I'm laying, but no one's taken. A year later, well, we weren't 100% right on that last one. One egg a day is okay. And now eggs are perfectly fine again. Things change, right? The experts say. Be careful. That's why God's given you a mind to use it. Often the issue is not what we eat, it's the moderation of how much we eat of it, right? Let's be careful. Let's be cautious. Let's learn for ourselves and so forth. But experts who are truly experts can understand that they too can be wrong at times. There's always something. What influences you to make the decisions that you make? It's a question that I think all of us really have to answer for ourselves. What influences us to make the decisions that we make? If you are a parent, what is influencing you in your parenting? If you are a husband, what is influencing you to be the husband that you are to be? Wives, the same question. The decisions that you make throughout life, what is influencing you to make those decisions? This is a question that people don't ask themselves. It's something that they do not wrestle through. But as a Christian, we have the Word of God. As a Christian, the Bible says if we are in need of wisdom, we are to ask and God will provide it generously. What influences us? Because the Bible also warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33-34, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. I've heard this verse often, but I never hear the second one read with it. So therefore, wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Stop it! Don't let those things that aren't meant to influence you, influence you. So number four, complacency. It's a certain type of complacency. It's a twofold complacency. It's a complacency saying, number one, I don't care, and number two, God doesn't care. It's troubling enough when an individual says, I, who says and claims Christianity, and then they say, I don't really care concerning the things that I do. That's a red flag to me, huge red flag. But it goes even one step farther when they say, God doesn't care. In Zephaniah one twelve, we have an interesting verse where God indicts his people, stating to them that they have concluded that God doesn't care either way, and they have become complacent as a result, as it states, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will do not good, nor will he do ill, meaning that he is indifferent. But the Bible calls us to wake up. We are not to be indifferent to the things that are sin. Romans 13, 11, and 12 states, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than ever before we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And number five, open obstinate rebellion against God. We must deal with that. 
This has caused desensitation to so many believers. I'm just not going to do it. I know what God says. I'm just not going to do it. But Hebrews writes, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a verse I want all of us to record and highlight for ourselves as we begin this series together. Hebrews 3, 7-11. through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, do not, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. For your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they will go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So many Christians are miserable because they have become lackadaisical about sin and they don't even realize it. In their quiet times when they're alone, they remember maybe how close they were to God at one time and now sin has separated them, has drawn them away and God seems and appears to be so distant from them. These are five things that have caused the desensitization of Christians in America concerning sin. There are five things that we must wrestle with. But this morning, as we close, I bring your attention to John chapter 8, if you'll turn there with me. I bring this passage to your attention because as I was making my way through John, in a time of personal devotion, I wrote that I said, Here we have an example of sin at the center and everyone knows it. There's no ambiguity. And there are four perspectives offered to us concerning sin. And then there's one startling consensus that we all must acknowledge and recognize if we're going to truly see this for what it is. As that time came, verse 2 of chapter 8, As the disciples went out of his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes, the Pharisees, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And in placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses... Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. There are so many things that could be said and mentioned about this particular occasion. But the first thing that I want you to know is this. That you have four perspectives all looking at the same scenario 
and coming to a consensus. And this is a rarity today. First, we begin with Jesus. There at the temple, as it was his custom to go there and to teach and begin to teach the people who were there, great crowds had begun to follow him. People began to hail him as the Messiah. And the Pharisees were already antagonists towards him. The scribes, the, the, the ruling class, the, the legal system of that time sought to challenge him continually, to trip him up, to stumble him up. So they bring this woman before him who apparently was caught in the very act of adultery. For it was early morning. And somehow, some way, they caught this woman who was found in the act of adultery. So we have Jesus, we have the religious leaders, we have the people that gathered there to listen to Jesus teach, and we have this woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, separating Jesus from the other three, let us be honest that the other three, all of them were there assembled looking upon this scenario, waiting to hear what Jesus would do. But there was one consensus that they all came to that is completely noticeable as we read and observe the text. No one stated their doubt that adultery was a sin. Do you see that anywhere in the text? Jesus, the people, the religious leaders, the woman. They all recognized and knew that adultery was sin. There was no ambiguity about that. There was complete consensus. What to do next is the question that is now being posed. For the law clearly stated that that woman should die because of her sin. Reality number two. Sin brings forth death. Okay? Sin brings forth death. However, though, it appears from the people who were willing to stone her, from the religious leaders who were provoking her to be stoned, and the woman who was standing there completely guilty of sin, there was one that was the most honest of them all, and it was the woman. Why do I say that? She knew what she had done. She didn't debate it. She was there possibly half undressed if she was actually caught She stood before the Lord Jesus Christ as we all do. And yet, for some reason, we seem to think that we're better than she is. What do I mean by that? Do you realize that before we came to Jesus Christ, we were all at enmity with God due to our sin? And do you realize if it wasn't for His saving grace, His mercy, His love, we would have never been brought into the kingdom of God? And yet, for some reason, even though we are walking in the newness of life, why is it that as Christians today we have seemed to forgot that it is His righteousness that we are clothed with, not ours? It is His grace that allows us to enter into the kingdom, into His presence. It's His mercy that has allowed us to be where we are today. He saved us, and not only did He save us, but He also blessed us with things that we have can't even comprehend and don't even know why he has done such a thing. But do we forget that we were like that woman? The honest, most honest one of them all. 
For the Pharisees, it's interesting, obviously they wanted her stoned. And if he said to stone her, then he was contradicting Romans' authority. And then they could have gone to Rome and said, listen, he now wants to put someone to death. That's a capital punishment. That's a capital offense. But Rome, you don't allow us to do that. So he is overstepping his authority and he's treading on your toes. That's what they wanted to do to Jesus. But if he were to simply dismiss her and let her go, he would have been light on sin. And they could have accused him that way. See, he is rejecting Moses. So Jesus did something, it's a mystery. He wrote something in the ground. We don't know what he wrote. But it is interesting to me that the law tells us that if a witness comes with malice towards one in whom they are witnessing against, they too shall be convicted and found guilty of the crime and sentenced the punishment of the one who is currently on trial. And that certainly speaks of the heart of the religious leaders. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be looking at sin from different perspectives. We are going to start with Jesus Christ, God, the author of life, the author of all things, the one who brought all things into creation, and we are going to understand why sin is so offensive to him. And then we're going to move our way down to the religious leaders, and we're going to discuss why today in America sin is so controversial. And why we can find a church that will satisfy and tell us that we are okay in our sin, no matter what that sin is. We're going to talk about why there is such a divided, uh, apparent uh, Christian community today. And what it means to the ramifications to our society and to the body of Christ. Then we're going to move to the people. See, the people have a responsibility too. See, people are supposed to be aware that sin has a negative effect upon the whole congregation. Do you realize that? That sin has a negative effect upon the whole congregation. One thing I'm going to tell you about sin, we're going to make it abundantly clear as we go, sin does not only affect you, it affects people around you. People living in sin, knowing that they're living in sin, and then their children see them living in sin. Their co-workers see them living in sin. And those people are baffled that those people don't want anything to do with Christ. Maybe it's because of our witness. Maybe it's because it's the way we're displaying them. Then we're going to move down to the woman. And by the time that we are ended the series together, I want us to have a serious disdain for sin. Meaning, I just don't want to go there. I want to enjoy the new life I have in Him. And one of the things I don't want to do is bring sin back in that He once dealt with already and we left outside the door the moment I came to Christ. I don't want to go back there. Because it's only at that moment, it's only at that moment that that woman knew that she was wrong before God, she was wrong before the people. And as He asked her that question and no one was left to condemn her except Jesus Himself, But Jesus, being on mission, said, I did not come into this world to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. I've come to save it. And he could forgive her of our sins because he knew that just a week later he was going to the cross. I want you and I to understand that. I want you and I to be so appreciative of all that Jesus Christ has done for us at the end of our time together in this series that we don't want to sin any longer. 
that we would just fall down before God and say, God, forgive me. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, Lord. I want to be right with you because I remember now what it took to bring me to where I currently am today. I'm going to leave you with four takeaway points as we conclude. Number one, how can you remain alert to the dangers of sin and to protect yourself from compromise? Compromise is the slippery slope to a life of sin. Number one, be aware of your sin. Know where you are weak. Know what your weaknesses are and take them to God. Whatever they may be. What you struggle with may be something different than someone else struggles with, but it's still something that challenges you. Be aware of your weakness. As David wrote in Psalm 51.3, My sin is always before me. As Isaiah cried out, Woe to me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. Peter said to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Notice what group we are in. David, Isaiah, Peter, Paul. They all realized where they stood before God. Second, remember the significance of the cross. If you allow a pattern of sin to develop in your life, you've forgotten the enormous price Christ paid to free you from its bondage. Remember the cross. Thirdly, realize that your sin has an effect on others. Realize that your sin has an effect on others. As God mourned over Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent her, as he wept in Psalm 119, 136, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep my law. It's because they have seen the effects of sin. They have uh, been swayed by the effects of sin. They are no longer walking as God would have them to walk, but they are walking according to their own manner. And finally, this is where it becomes the most radical. Finally, eliminate anything that hinders your sensitivity to sin such as deliberate sinning, rejecting God's forgiveness, being proud, presuming on the grace of God, or taking sin too lightly. Any of those things can dull your sensitivity to sin. Again, why are we doing this? We're doing this because God said it very clearly. Be holy, for I am holy. We want to not only be men and women of prayer at this church, but we want to be men and women who are walking with the Lord properly. Now as I close this morning, I understand that you're sitting here, and this is a lot to hear. There isn't one person here that this does not touch. But that's why God instilled His grace. That's why God instilled and offered his mercy. That's why God came to bridge that gap between fallen man and holy God. That woman stood before Jesus absolutely guilty before God of all the universe. And yet, what did she find from God? Not condemnation, but mercy. But what does he tell her? Go and keep doing what you're doing. No, go. Sin no more. 
Our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of mercy. Whatever it may be, examine your heart before him. As we now look at this thing, at this thing more um, focused, and we're going to laser in on some points, we're going to be talking about some difficult subjects going forward. And one of the most difficult ones that I think all of us are going to have to grapple with may not be one that you expect. I think all of us are going to be shocked to discover the magnitude of the sin of idolatry before God. But again, if you think, wow, man, Pastor, you're you're just getting a little heavy on this stuff. I mean, this is just a little too heavy. I mean, you're just really laying it on. Let me remind you of one thing. What did God need to go through? What did God need to go through to rectify the effects of sin upon man? And then you ask, you tell me that I'm getting too heavy. I tell you, we've just begun. We've just begun.